0: Hello and welcome to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry. And for today's pick for season five was another early entry of the decade, provoking conversation with its controversial themes and obvious reputation of the auteur. So today we shall take a closer look at the 2012 Western drama Django Unchained, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino and starring Jamie Foxx, Christoph Waltz, Samuel L. Jackson, Kerry Washington, and Leonardo DiCaprio. Now, coming off inglorious Bastards, this was a highly anticipated production. that talks of reigniting the conversation of slavery again in the provocateur manner that Tarantino likes to introduce into his stories. Western was always a genre he spoke highly of in terms of appreciation, dating back to the good, the bad and the ugly days, and had yet to dip his toes into the genre itself. Now, after Kill Bill, many had heard he was eyeing up a few genres, World War II and, of course, the Western genre, and both were equally exciting to fans all over the world, considering... His last few films touched on mainly the crime genre. Jackie Brown, Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, even Kill Bill could be classed as a crime movie. However, with Kill Bill, the director paid more of a homage to the Asian stylized methods of maybe Kung Fu movies. And he did his own version, which again is another genre he was fond of, like Western and the World War II epics. So we saw a glimpse of what he could do with a different genre. He then tried to revive an old cinematic idea in The Grindhouse. ...back-to-back movies with an old nostalgic B-movie trailers in between... ...one of which actually became a movie, Machete, with Danny Trejo. The idea didn't really work out though... ...because not many people wanted to watch movies back-to-back in the cinema... ...so they were released separately... ...but there were some places that did it in the traditional Grindhouse manner. Tarantino's Grindhouse, who he collaborated with longtime friend Robert Rodriguez... ...who he worked with in Dust Till Dawn and Sin City... ...is considered his lowest point in his film's career... Now, that being said, and as Tarantino says, if he dies knowing that Death Proof was his worst film, he'll die a happy man. So then he came out of the woodworks three to four years later and went back to a completely different genre, a genre he idolizes, a genre he made no secret of displaying how passionate he was about it, the war genre. And in that, Tarantino became once again critically acclaimed with heights that would give Pulp Fiction a run for its money. Now, by using the attributes of the glorious bastards, and what I mean by that, the Oscar-winning talent of Christoph Waltz, and also turning the media and critic attention to him once again on a film that could possibly be called his masterpiece, many were eagerly anticipating his next production, and of course, with Christoph making a second appearance back-to-back in Django Unchained after his Oscar-winning performance in Glorious, many could not wait for this film. The world was waiting when it was announced that he would now be waking a Western movie based on slavery, giving African-American people a Western hero that they never had grown up. And if anything, this is probably one of Tarantino's most important films of his career simply because of the timing of the movie and the themes that it tackles in the movie and of course the controversy and build up of certain scenes in this film now with a star studded cast that included Leonardo DiCaprio it was the first time in his career that he was first he was not the first billing in the movie since 1998 where he was second or third in the man in the eye mask that means he wasn't the main character which was definitely creating curiosity since the movie got announced and was Creating this storm of excitement and expectation for this movie, I think it's also the first time as well that Leonardo DiCaprio first played a villain as well. Salio was originally casted as Hans Lander in Inglorious Basterds because Tarantino was very eager to work with him for a while, but opted out because he wanted a German-speaking actor to do the role, and more importantly, to say his dialogue in the way he could, in the way he's written in other languages too. But as fate had had it, he finally cast him as Monsieur Candy in this film. And as turns of events go, the actor that eventually did play Hans Lander in the Oscar-winning performance Christoph Waltz originally rejected the role of Dr. King Schultz because he said he wanted to play a pure man that had a good heart. And so with a little rewrite from Tarantino, he said, OK, Dr. Schultz is exactly that now. And he ended up playing the role and again ended up winning another Best Supporting Actor for the role of Dr. King Schultz in this movie, back-to-back Osc- Oscars. And this, it's an interesting revelation in the movie because Dr. King Schultz is a dentist in this movie. Well, he says he hasn't practiced in a long time, but a dentist nonetheless, constantly reminding the audience of this from the wagon. And the subclimax of the film with Candy may illustrate that there may be layers to this. The reason why Monsieur Candy's teeth are so rotten is because he indulges a lot in sweets, hence his name. And I thought that was quite a good metaphor here for who is good and who is bad. The dentist treating the patient here in terms of Dr. King Schultz being about above the slavery and the treatment of black people and the rotten teeth and the personality of Monsieur Candy who indulges in slavery and the disgusting treatment of black people seen as his property. And even more curiously, when they do finally meet, as the metaphor suggests, maybe trying to educate or treat his patients with curiosity about a black person who can speak German. And there are more than just property, and also the stories he tells in the presence of Dr. King Schultz, the idea of why they didn't do anything, suggesting he is aware that they are more than property, that they may have free will, and is baffled by this slave who never harmed his dad. And then right at the end, before they both die, King Schultz brings up Alexander Dumas, since Candy names one of, slaves, one of the slaves D'Antanian, which is one of the characters in The Free Musketeers, therefore indicating that Candy must have read The Free Musketeers and enjoyed it not knowing it was written by a black person, which King Schultz tells him at the end. And it's Leo's performances right there. It's almost seen that it might be adding up now, how stupid this slavery thing might be. And something might be clicking in his head for the first time. This patient doctor metaphor acting out here that might just suggest that Leonardo DiCaprio plays on the fact that he might be turning a fence here. He might be on the fence about slavery. But then at that pivotal moment, as Tarantino does so well in the movies, just when a character starts to develop as a human being, as becoming better, Schultz quickly diverts the attention to the contract, which of course he taps out of his train of thought and continues with the deal. And I just think that subtlety with these two characters are amazing. I have no idea if it's that deep intentionally or what Tarantino was trying to do here, but it would certainly would suggest something along those lines. Remember, nothing in film is by accident, specifically the ex-professions of characters and the names of characters. Also, his character being a dentist turned bounty hunter is probably an inside reference to Doc Holliday if anyone is a Wyatt Earp fan. King shouts from the name that we deduce power, authority, and also his upbringing, his origin, where it's relevant because he tells the story of Brumhilda and as fate would have it, encourages this journey to save her and thus using his native language to rescue her from the heights of evil. And then we have the name of Monsieur Candy, Monsieur Calvin Candy, which is just a walk-in contradiction because he didn't actually speak any French he doesn't speak French, which says a lot about his mannerism his attitude, and maybe the contradiction in the way he sees slavery the fact that he is friendly with Stephen who is black he listens to him allows him to interrupt him, and also the contradiction of liking uh the book written by a black man the free musketeers and also leo's acting indicating his curiosity for Django a black man who is free and happily defends him despite Django talking back at him and of course the candy which probably is not accidental to juxtapose it with the dentist in this movie, which where we are visually reminded to the audience from his wagon and the waggling teeth above. The idea of his plantation called Candyland and the main crops that the slaves would harvest would be sugar, then in turns makes Monsieur Candy rot inside. I mean, the film connotes these metaphors as clear as day, not to mention his profession of uh, Dr. Schultz, he's a bounty hunter, not a dentist anymore. And at the end of the movie, he goes back to what he knows and serves a patient, who is Monsieur Candy, going back to his origins. Which is emphasised by the fact that he is pursuing a German mythology to help Brumhilda escape, and even talking German to her. So these little traits in Tarantino's movies add up all the time. And he does go back to stories of all these characters that we don't know about, these backstories that we, the audience, are not aware of, but is clearly hinted at in the movie. And that would be my guess on those two characters for sure. And some people criticise that a German wouldn't be around at the time, but it is actually historically accurate because in the the 1840s, which is when I assume the film is set, a lot of German revolutionaries migrated to America. And most were active in the anti-slave trade, which is actually quite Interesting. Obviously, for me, yes, the film is about Django. I mean, the title is called Django Unchained. He is the main character, but Tarantino usually focuses attention and weight on the supporting cast. The main character in the movie usually takes a back seat in his movies, like Brad Pitt in Inglourious Bastards, Jackie Brown in Jackie Brown, Stuntman Mike in Death Proof, and Django in this. And it's one of the reasons why Will Smith rejected the role, because he was the first choice for Django, but said he doesn't consider Django the main character. And from the style of his writing and narrative, he is correct. And so, consequently, the role went to Jamie Foxx. So let's talk about the movie a bit. I mean, we already know Christoph Waltz won an Oscar for the role uh, of Dr. King Schultz. It's actually the longest performance by a supporting actor to win the role. He was in the movie for an hour and six minutes, which is a lot for a supporting role. Anthony Hopkins won Best Actor for 12 minutes for playing Hannibal Lecter. So you can see the difference there. So the other Oscar, the only one it won, finally went to Tarantino for Best Support and Screenplay. That's his second Oscar after winning in the same category for Pulp Fiction. He's never won Best Director yet. Hopefully his 10th and final film may give him that job. I mean, it's the first Western to win the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay since 1969. And that was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And it's the first one to win an award for acting in the same category since 1992, which was Unforgiven. And this movie, along with True Grit, repeated a rare pattern where 20 years earlier, two Westerns, the other one being Dancing with Wolves, were nominated for Best Picture two years apart, which is actually quite interesting. So he was adamant he was going to win best screenplay for Inglorious Bastards in 2010, but the Oscar ended up going to Mark Ball, who won for the Hurt Locker. And again, when he wrote Django for the Oscars in 2013, they were nominated against each other for Django, and Mark Ball was nominated for Zero Dark 30. And Tarantino was so sure he would win again, and he said if he beats me again, I'm just going to you know I'm just gonna kill him. Because he was so sure he was gonna win Inglorious, and he was so sure he would win this. But yeah, no, he did, he finally won it. Um it was a hundred million dollar budget for this film, which makes this the most expensive film Tarantino has done so far. It made just over five hundred million at the box office winning two Oscars. I mean, the film itself took 136 days to shoot, the longest ever production stage for Quentin Tarantino ever. It also holds the record for the number of times the N-word is said, which is 116 times. Leo even had a difficult time saying his line. He said one day when he was doing his scene, he paused and he just said he couldn't do it. And Sam Jackson just took him aside and simply said, motherfucker, this is another Tuesday for us, (laughs) which I thought was quite funny. So Tarantino does recognise this film is a western, but likes the term southern, since the film is set in the deep south. So with Leo, his first of two collaborations of Tarantino, he plays a villain for the first time, like Emma mentioned earlier. Quinzen says the Monsieur Candy is one of the worst characters he's ever written he says he's the one character he truly despises that being said this goes back to the backstories we have no idea what this guy has done besides what we are shown on screen he doesn't appear in the movie until one hour and three minutes a long awaited debut in a tarantino movie marking him as one of the most vile characters in the tarantino world and he doesn't actually kill anyone on screen i mean from his orders, he kills two people, but never anyone himself. Django, however, kills thirty-eight people. Schultz kills thirty-three people. Most of Tarantino's heroes or main characters are usually morally or ethically challenged, but in this case, Django is justified here. Leo, um, as you may know, injured himself twice during this movie. Once in rehearsals with that hammer hitting his hands for filming, so they used the um, so for the actual scene they used the foam one to avoid another injury and the second injury happened on film and is still in the movie today so when leo smashes his hand on the table he smashes the glass that was on the table and it cut his hand so deep and he was pouring blood none of that was part of the movie and therefore the expressions on everyone's face if you look at kerry washington and christoph waltz they were genuine but leo just carried on the scene and it still remains in the movie today it's the same with um Brad Pitt as well in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood going back to the idea of good guys and bad guys in Tarantino movies. He's one of the main good guys, but he may have killed his wife in um Once Upon a Time in um, Hollywood. Jules and Vincent are meant to be the good guys, but they are gangsters that kill, so the morality of the protagonists in Tarantino's movies are somewhat not straightforward. And rather makes more it more the story more compelling and engaging. Also, the referencing from previous films as well, which Tarantino does so well, like Vincent Vega's meant to be the brother of uh, Michael Madsen's character in Reservoir Dogs. But in this film, um, Schultz, if you're a big Tarantino fan, more specifically a big Kill Bill fan, there's a grave in Kill Bill 2 called Paula Schultz, which is where she's buried alive. Um, and there is a connection there, but we have never revealed what it is. There have been theories that this was Dr. Schultz's wife and because of her death, he pursued a Korean bounty hunting to avenge the evil that may have possibly endure, ended her life. But who knows? But Tarantino has neither confirmed or denied that theory. The biggest reference is um the one that comes from Hilda's last name, Brumhilde von Shaft. And Quinton actually confirms this one at Comic Con saying that Django and Brumhilde are the great-great-grandparents of John Shaft from the 1971 TV show, a character played by Samuel L. Jackson in the movie Twenty Years Later. Um, so we always we always have this little side reference now and again in Tarantino movies. And that was a, one of the rare ones where Tarantino confirmed it. In Kill Bill 2, again, Bill says how painful it is to be shot in the kneecaps. And Mr. White says the same thing in Reservoir Dogs. And Django does exactly that to Steven in this movie. Shoots him in both of his kneecaps. Ironically, Sam Jackson kills a bounty hunter in Star Wars called Django Fett or Django Fett. And in this, gets killed by a bounty hunter called Django. So it's quite interesting, these little connections in the movies. And I don't know if you know this, but there's this hint of mythology, which I like, that Tarantino had a look into. When Django takes on this mythical form while on Big Daddy's plantation, confronting the Brittle Brothers, do you remember that scene? The Gothic nature of this scene is clearly represented when Big John Brittle is about to whip Little Jody for breaking eggs. Do you remember that scene? So Django is dressed in this like blue attire, this blue boy attire, he's all in blue. But when Little Jody looks at his image in the mirror next to the tree where she's tied up, Django's head and hands are invisible in the reflection. So watch that scene again and look at the reflection. His hands and his head are not there. And it's elevating this mystic stature to that of an enchanted figure. In gothic fairy tale, specters and ghosts are unable to see their own reflections. Now, with Tarantino already tackling mystery in Hateful Eight and maybe completely his trilogy of the unwritten history franchise, which is what he's doing here with *Inglorious Bastards, Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where Hitler gets killed, the black overcomes slavery in the 1840s, and Sharon's hate doesn't get murdered. I think Tarantino may finish his 10th and final film with some kind of mythology, but that's my guess, because you see that in all of his films, especially with this uh, Django dressing up in blue and not seeing his uh, reflection in that scene. He's a big fan of folklore and fairy tales. I mean, he usually references these myths in his movies, like the myth of Marcellus Wallace's soul in a briefcase in Pulp Fiction, uh, the the mythological vigilante that Django is, and the tales of the bear Jew and the bastards told in a mytho- mythological way. I just think with his past nine films, he may take a stab at something along those lines and a fairy tale mythology of some sort. The film definitely made some waves in the market, restarting the conversation of slavery and the rise of black power as well. Donald Trump watched this film and commented on Twitter and called it the most racist film I have ever seen. Well, he's clearly not seen Birth of a Nation then. The film caused a stir at the Channel 4 interview of Tarantino refusing to comment on the violence of his movie, simply saying he has answered these questions before. But that being said, this is still a film that has been widely successful, entertaining and somewhat revealing too. It's a fantastic movie that reunites quite a lot of the actors back again. Kerry Washington and Jamie Foxx play husband and wife again after this. They played it in, I think they played, uh, what film was it? Husband and Wife in Ray, yeah. They played it in Ray where he won his Oscar actually. Of course, Samuel L. Jackson makes yet another appearance in another Tarantino movie. His fifth appearance I believe. Then we have the usual lot, Bruce Stern, and of course Christoph Waltz from *Inglorious Bastards, and most of these actors would later work again on Quentin Tarantino's next film, The Hateful Eight. You've got Sam Jackson, Bruce Dern, Zoe Bell, Walter Goggins... And speaking of the hateful eight, Kurt Russell was meant to be in Django and play um, Ace, and Sasha Baron Cohen was meant to play Spec. They're the two guys that um, King Schultz kill at the start of the movie, but they both had to drop out of the movie due to scheduling conflicts in their respected movie. Tarantino has his usual bunch, but they never, he never really goes away from his usual talent because he knows those actors can speak his dialogue. So I found out for the uh, for hateful eight, which I'm probably going to do a podcast on because it's a very overlooked film. I think it's one of his best films because it's just so subtle and unique and it's so brilliantly done. Um, But the story came across when he was writing Django and he used the character of Django uh, who stumbles across um, a haberdashery and he doesn't know who um, anyone is there. And Quentin knew that there was something wrong with the story as he kept writing it. And he knew he had to remove the main character, Django, because he knew everyone knew who he was and thus creating this enigmatic atmosphere of who's telling the truth. So we were blessed with The Hateful Eight by the removal of Django as a character, which is quite interesting. But I'll talk more about that on my next podcast with The Hateful Eight. It's one film of his he really captures the atmosphere it's surroundings as is the hateful eight but i'll talk about that then but anyways yeah that's all i have time for with um Django unchained truly inspiring doesn't shy away from the gratuitous violence in this movie a story that rises the dignity of a slave and casts him on a journey of vengeance which if he succeeds even in a violent and gory way that he does acts as a silent spiritual redemption but anyways, uh, please subscribe to me. I'm on uh, Instagram, Film Exploration, all lowercase or one word. And you can subscribe, subscribe to me on Google, iTunes, and I'm also on Spotify. And uh, once again, thank you for listening to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry.